Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Jeff Shara. Jeff is the author of 15 New York Times bestselling novels, including Gods and Generals and The Last Full Measure, which are the prequel and sequel to his father, Michael Shara's novel, The Killer Angels. In 2003, Warner Brothers made Gods and Generals into a movie by the same name that was a sequel to the 1993 film Gettysburg. So, Jeff, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. So, I always ask first, tell us, um, where are you in the world right now? <laughs> uh, I'm right outside of Philadelphia. Uh, we just moved over here from Gettysburg, actually, about uh, back in September. So, you know, in, in a new house, and we're kind of finding our way around. And our daughter's at uh, Temple University, and so we really enjoy the city. We enjoy being over this area. So and the weather's not so nice right now, but uh, it's a nice place to be. So you were in Gettysburg before. Did that tie into the why of how you guys were writing about uh, the subject? or No, not really. Uh, I mean, I, I, the, the reason I moved there is for about 25 years, I've been really good friends with a woman there who runs a local hotel where I've been staying for all these years oh, wow. when I would go there for book signing events and all that kind of thing. And we just became really close friends. And then about seven years ago, we got closer. <laughs> and uh, when we got married, I, that's when I actually moved wow. uh, from Florida. And I moved up to Gettysburg. And uh, we waited for our daughter to get out of high school. And once that happened, then we decided to move over here. So Gettysburg is a very obvious thing. It's a very special place. Right. It's my wife's hometown uh, forever. I mean, her family goes back to the 1700s. But um, it's, you know, it is a very special place for obvious reasons. For me, it's a place that when my father went there with his family in 1964, it began his odyssey writing The Killer Angels, which changed his life, my right. life, and an awful lot of readers, I think, appreciate that. So it is a very special place. Now, earlier, I described who you are, what you do, but my descriptions never do enough justice. Would you mind telling us in your own words who you are? what you do, and uh, what you're, maybe what you're working on now? Well, I write historical fiction. Typically, um, it's more of so, sort of military uh, fiction based around American uh, military events throughout our history, all the way back to the American Revolution, right up through the Korean War with my most recent book. I'm actually working right now uh, going back to World War II in the Pacific. I'm working on Pearl Harbor, which is logically enough the, the beginning. I did a trilogy in World War II in Europe, and I, you know a lot of people, a lot of the Marines got mad at me and said, you know, what about this other part of the world? So I'm going back, and I'm, I'm focusing on that right now. I would not say I write war books. I mean, that's sort of an easy description for what I do. I mean, these are novels told through the eyes of some of the most significant people in our history, and then not just our history, but British history, German history. And with the Civil War, you've got Yankees and rebels, you know, you have both sides, and, you know, then a Japanese character and then Chinese character in the Korea book. So the idea is to tell a story from both sides, and it's not just a history lesson. I don't write what you read in high school. I'm not going <laughs> to bomb you with, you know, names, dates, places, facts, and figures. I don't want to read that stuff any more than, you know, a typical high school student does. It's the idea is to tell a good story, to find the right characters so that. As someone said, uh, you know, if you read one of my books, 
if a high school student reads one of my books, he's learning the history and he doesn't even realize he's learning the history. Right. Because if you can get into it and relate to the characters, that's important for me to tell the story in the first place. And that's my goal for the reader is to give, you know, simply give them a good story. And walk us through how you got to where you are in your career. How does one go from being an aspiring writer, per se, to becoming a 15-time New York Times bestselling author? Well, it's funny because I was never an aspiring writer. My father was a writer all his life. And when he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1975 for the Killer Angels, any writer who wins a Pulitzer Prize has the right to believe that his ship has come in. You know, anything he writes from now on is going to be a hit. People are going to fight over his next book. None of that happened to my father. If you think about 1975, end of the Vietnam War, nobody in this country wanted to read a book about generals. And that's what The Killer Angels is about. It's the Battle of Gettysburg. That was a bitter disappointment to my father. His career sort of fizzled from that point on. And then in 1988, he died. His second heart attack, he was only 59. Well, the movie Gettysburg, Ted Turner put up the money to make this movie based on my father's book five years after my father's death. So he didn't live to see what became this enormously successful movie, Gettysburg. And the movie made my father's book a number one bestseller, something he didn't live to see. Well, Turner came to me and said, you know, he, he wanted to make more movies. It was always with Ted. It was always about movies. And he's, you know, wouldn't it be great to take your father's book, which is just Gettysburg, go before and after, and, you know, so that someone else could adapt for a screenplay. I had never written anything before, and I thought it was something I'd like to try to do. So I put a story together that became Gods and Generals. And the conversation we had was, if whatever I put together is lousy, it goes in the trash. I mean, nobody will ever see it. That's why there was no fear. I mean, I get asked all the time, how did you know how to write a book? I had no idea. And I wasn't afraid because I assumed, I mean, there were no expectations. So the idea, I'll put a story together that someone else will adapt for a screenplay. Meanwhile, I'm the businessman in my family. I'm representing my father's estate in New York with Random House. Killer Angels is a number one bestseller. So I'm talking to the publisher there. And I told her what I was doing, that I was working on the prequel to the Killer Angels called Gods and Generals. And she said, oh, send us the manuscript. Okay, I (laughs) sent the manuscript. The the phone call I got back was, we don't care if it's a movie. We like the book. Here's a contract. That was September of 1995. That changed my whole life. Gods and Generals comes out and debuts on the bestseller list, something my father never saw in his whole career. And I was under no illusions that the great American author had arrived. I knew full well people wanted more of the Killer Angels. And I was being cut huge slack by the critics all over the country. The publisher sent me on a 59-city book signing tour. And everywhere I went, I mean, I got – it was like almost like people were rooting for this to work. And, I mean, I was awestruck by the whole process, totally. Everywhere I'd go, my face would be in a newspaper. Somebody would want to interview me, radio shows. Nothing like this had ever happened to my father in his lengthy career. All of a sudden, it was happening to me. And actually, my my mother, who had passed away a couple years ago, she actually said to me at one point, because she endured my father's 40-year career, mostly of failure, And she actually said to me one day, why is the good stuff happening to you? Right. You know, I hadn't paid the dues. And I totally understand that, you know, that way of thinking. But 
I was living a dream, and it was an extraordinary experience. The problem was then it came time to write the next book, to write the last full measure, to finish the trilogy around my father's book. Now I'm scared to death because now there are expectations. And now there's an editor in New York going, you know, how are you coming with that thing? Are you finished yet? Right, there's pressure. And the last full measure comes out, hits the same way on the bestseller list, and I'm off and running with a career. And when people ask, I get a lot of emails through my website, prospective writers, people who've written some manuscripts or trying to get published, and they ask, what can you suggest? What hints can you give? That's tough. I don't want to sound arrogant at all, but I mean, I'm not the typical case. I mean, I'm not the struggling writer who finally caught a break. I launched right into this, and my father was the struggling writer, and I got the break. And it's it's a sort of a unique situation. I understand that, and I'm very careful about taking credit for this because my father opened an enormous door for me that otherwise I never would have seen. And how often do people know that side of the story? Because, you know, I had imagined that maybe, you know, you had started writing with your father and kind of that was kind of how it was passed down. You were an aspiring writer. So do you find that most people don't quite know that side of the story right away? I think so. I mean, I've talked about it a lot and when I've done appearances and so forth and on my website. But it's funny because, you know, people have asked me exactly what you just said. Oh, well, you know, did you help your father? Were you writing with your father? Did you want to be a writer? You know, when, when your father was alive, the answer is absolutely not. Wow. And I think my father would have thought I was crazy had I wanted to be a writer. You know, he again, he could never, you know, he, he, this was a first class storyteller and a man who won a Pulitzer Prize. He could never make a living from his writing. My mother worked for the state of Florida for 37 years to pay the bills because he couldn't pay the bills with his writing. Well, if I'd ever said to him, hey, dad, I think I want to, you know, let me sit out the typewriter. I've got an idea. I think I want to be a writer. He'd have probably knocked me off my chair. Like, you know, go get a real job. I mean, he loved writing. He was a writer from the time he was in college. But he also understood that, you know, when he's looking at me, no, you probably should get a real job. You know, you mentioned that the book, the original book, The Killer Angels, you said won a Pulitzer, correct? Correct. The book came out in 1974. It won the Pulitzer in 75. And again, what I said before, every writer has the the right to expect his Pulitzer Prize winning novel is going to become a bestseller. It didn't. It never sold really well at all. In fact, copies of those early editions are worth a lot of money. They're very collectible because the publisher didn't reprint them. I mean, there, there just was no audience for that story about the Battle of Gettysburg. And how did it resurface later on? How did uh, Ted Turner show interest or, you know, how did that come about later on that kind of fueled? I credit Ken Burns. After Burns' enormous success with his Civil War project in the early 90s, the way I heard it is there was a party in honor of, of, like a reception in honor of Ken Burns. Ted Turner was there. And Burns actually told me this himself. He went up to Ted and said, there's a book you need to read. And there's a guy named Ron Maxwell who's out there who optioned (laughs) the story from my father. There's a man named Ron Maxwell trying to get a movie made. You really should look into this. And that's how Ted Turner found out about the Killer Angels. Now, I've met Ken Burns on a number of occasions. He's a terrific human being beyond everything else. He actually told me that if it wasn't for the Killer Angels, he never would have done his Civil War project. That I mean, you know, he credits reading that book to opening his eyes to the Civil War. 
you know, what an incredible compliment for my father's work. Again, something my father didn't live to see. Wow. Before we go into process, and I'm actually excited about the process because, as you mentioned, you weren't originally an aspiring writer. So, definitely want to hear about your process and how you got to that point. We like to do something we call a series of seemingly random questions. Traditionally, we've done this at the very end, but I kind of like to throw it in the beginning to kind of just warm things up a little bit. Are you down to do some seemingly random questions? Seemingly random? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. These do lean a little bit uh, on the Gods and Generals, Gettysburg, even movie mm-hmm. side of things. So, number one, if you could take any writer to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose? Which restaurant and why? <laughs> okay, you want an, just an impromptu quick impromptu answer quick that, answer. Right? Well, okay, and I will say that the, the writer, and this is going to be sort of a surprising answer, the writer is Benjamin Franklin. Of all the characters, I have used him in two books from his uh, written in his head through his point of view, put words in his mouth. And in my research, I love this man. He is a fabulous character, and he's maybe the greatest American who ever lived for a variety of reasons. Put Abraham Lincoln in there, too. Um, (laughs) As far as the restaurant, he would want something French. Oh, wow. Because he loved the French, and, you know, his time in Paris changed history. So I would take him to the finest French restaurant I could find and hope, hope it did him justice. All right. Question number two. Your novel, Gods and Generals, was made into a movie, as we mentioned. What was your involvement in that process? I know you hinted earlier that, you know, there's a story there. Were you involved in the adaptation? I imagine so. Did you get to be on set? Walk us through kind of that experience. And I know this one will probably won't be a quick answer. <laughs> I have to be careful about okay. what I say about this. And based on what I briefly mentioned this earlier, I was on the set. I'm actually in the movie. I'm actually in a scene. They asked me, I mean, it's one of these perks they throw, you know, out. What scene would you like to be in? And, you know, you stand in the background and don't do anything and don't mess anything up, you know. And I said, well, well, what scene is Ted Turner in? Because I knew that's the only scene in the movie they can't cut because Ted put up all the money. So I'm in this scene. You know, I was to ask if I had any involvement in the process, the answer to that is a surprise to a lot of people. A lot of people assume logically that I participated in the writing of the script, you know, that I'm adapting my book for a screenplay, that I would have some role in that. I had absolutely no role in that. Oh, wow. I was there during the casting in New York. There was a casting call for actors, a lot of Broadway kind of people and people, you know, Frankie Faison, who the, the, uh, the African-American character in the movie plays Stonewall Jackson's um, cook. He's a great actor. He's been around forever. And um, I, I got to meet him, which was very nice. So I'm sitting there and I'm watching all these people come in and audition for minor roles in the film. And I heard mistakes. I heard some pronunciations of some of the names wrong. And I offered, you know, to correct. Oh, it, that actually is, and I would offer a correction. And, uh, you know, the director and the, the casting director and a couple other people, they would say, oh, thank you very much. We appreciate that input. And then they absolutely ignored everything I told them. And I found out that in Hollywood, when you're talking about a director and screenwriter, the same man, when they are doing their thing, it's their idea. And it's not you. I mean, it's you know, obviously the movie is based on the novel by Jeff Sharon. I mean, it says that right up front. but. The notion that you are automatically a part of the next process is simple. Unless you're Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, 
And that's right. just not true. And I, I did not know that going into this. And when I saw the uncut, six-hour, uncut, rough-cut version of the movie, I was in a screening room in Hollywood with about half a dozen people. When I saw this, it should have been the happiest day of my life. Here's my movie on the screen. And there were scenes that made me squirm in my chair. And, I mean, I was stunned. The one thing I have to go back to, Gettysburg, based on my father's The Killer Angels, if you read The Killer Angels and watch Gettysburg, the movie is 90% of the book. It's amazing. Oh, wow. Now, that almost never happens. When you look at Gods and Generals, you read my book, see the film, the movie's about 15% of my book. And That was a shock. You know, I mean, whole long stretches of scenes that I didn't write had nothing to do with my book. And then big chunks of the book that were simply left out of the movie. And I mean, again, it's a process. I mean, you buy your ticket, you take your chances. I mean, I can't. It's difficult for me to gripe about this because I know there are writers out there who would cut off an arm to have a movie made out of their book. I get that. And, you know, and I'm forever grateful that, that, that people have approached me and said, oh, I love the movie. Well, that, that's very nice. But I've had a whole lot of other people who come to me and said, how could you let them butcher your book like that? I mean, I've heard that a lot. Wow. When you sign the paper, you sign away that control. And I think that's what a lot of people done. Again, unless you're Stephen King or J.K. Rowling or John Gresham, you know, other than that, that's, that's about it. And you just don't have any control. Building on the movie side of things, two different actors played General Robert E. Lee in Gettysburg and Gods of Generals, Martin Sheen and Robert Duvall, respectively. Is there one actor whose depiction of the character felt closer to what was written in their uh, respective books? Well, you know, that, that, well, that's a really good question. Sheen, I mean, I will give Sheen 100% credit. He came into the movie. The first movie, Gettysburg, was supposed to have been Robert Duvall from the beginning, but he had just done Lonesome Dove, and the way I heard it, he was exhausted, and he begged off literally with about three weeks to go before they started filming. Well, Sheen came in at the last minute. He didn't know how to ride a horse. They had to teach him how to ride a horse, and from that point of view, realizing what he took on, he did a magnificent job. I've heard complaints. I've heard people say, oh, he played Lee in this way, that way, and people have gripes. You're never going to please everybody. I mean, I understand that. <laughs> but I give Sheen 100% credit for what he accomplished because this was not a role that he was probably ever, in his mind, that he was ever destined to play. Now, Duvall, on the other hand, I mean, I think he's related to Robert Lee. He lives in Virginia. And, you know, certainly his portrayal of Lee was spot on. And the reenactors loved him. He really, it would have been interesting had Duvall played the role in the film Gettysburg as he was originally, you know, scheduled to do. We'll never know, of course. But I'm sort of loath to compare one to the other, to, to, you know, rate who did the better job. Because under the circumstances, you know, Sheen had a big chunk of that movie, whereas Duvall, you know, he's a minor player in Gods and Generals. Robert E. Lee is not the major character that he was in my book. It's mostly Stonewall Jackson and Joshua Chamberlain, which are you know also major characters in my book. But there's also Hancock and Lee, you know, Winfield Hancock and Robert E. Lee, neither one of which are major figures in the movie. Well, that's, you know, 
for the actors, I think that was a big disappointment. But no, I mean, both men are extreme professionals. Both men are terrific actors. And I, I don't think either one of them um, deserves any, any criticism. Last movie-related question, and my own father has asked me this many, many times. Will we ever see a movie adaptation of The Last Full Measure? Doubtful. And the reason is very, very simple. Ted Turner said during, I mean, he actually said this to me, during the, the uh, auction of gods and generals, all he wanted that movie to do was break even. If the movie would break even, he would make the third film. He would make The Last Full Measure. The problem is, as I understand the numbers, Ted Turner lost about $30 million on Gods and Generals. It was, you know, it did not do anything at the box office, and then some of it was salvaged by DVD sales and all that. But the movie was, from Hollywood's point of view, a bomb. Therefore, Ted dropped the option to last full measure. I mean, he, he backed away, and so far, that's the end of it. Uh, it unfortunately, in Hollywood, these two films now have the the sort of nickname on them is Ted's Boutique Films, and nobody will touch them. Nobody will touch the third film. Plus, these days, you're looking at a budget. Gods and Generals cost $60 million to make. You're looking now at a budget, you know, at least that, and maybe up to $100 million. That's a big ticket for a very unproven track record on the series. So I really don't think that it's going to be made. I mean, I hear. That question probably once a week. You know, <laughs> and I I'm get sure. the same answer. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. There are a lot of people rooting for it. I don't think it's going to happen. If they were going to make it, you said that Gods and Generals didn't kind of uh, do as well as they wanted. Is there something that you think would help if they made this into a movie to make it a little bit more profitable in the box office? Is it casting? Is it telling the story differently? Well, interestingly, the casting would be radically different because everybody from the first two right. movies are too old. I mean, I, and I have to say, the one conversation I had with Jeff Daniels, who plays Joshua Chamberlain, he was really disappointed that Last Full Measure wasn't made because Chamberlain's role at Appomattox was a huge piece of history, and what a great role for an actor. Jeff Daniels was really looking forward to that. Now he can't do it, and now he's too old to do it, and so it would be a bunch of 25-, 30-year-old actors now instead of Duvall and Chamberlain and, you know, which is really a shame, but it would have to start from scratch. And I think the mistake that was made with Gods and Joe, one of the mistakes, is it should have been a miniseries. It should have been like an eight-hour miniseries, you know, stretched out over a number of days. And I think the same thing should be done with Last Full Measure. You can't chop it, and which is what they tried to do with disastrous results. You need to tell the whole story with the characters. The only way to do that is to do it as a miniseries. Well, especially in today's world with uh, serialized content, Netflix, Hulu, all that, exactly. maybe that's the perfect uh, you know, platform for it. So maybe we will see it. Maybe. Fingers crossed. Last question of the seemingly random questions. They were not very random, though. <clears throat> they were very uh, catered to you. What's something people get wrong about writers? <laughs> Boy, that's a, that's, a, that's a tough one because people... Again, one of the things we've already talked about is pe that people get wrong about me is that I started out as a struggling <laughs> writer or that I helped my, my father helped me or I helped my father. I mean, none of that ever happened. Writers in general, I think maybe it's that there's a certain people want to believe there's a romance to it. 
that somehow being a writer, you know, the idea of the guy in the corduroy sport jacket with the patches on his elbows and smoking <laughs> a pipe, you know, that somehow yeah, that's what a writer should be, that it, it conjures up, you know, notions of you know, Hemingway or, or something. And I mean, that's great. I mean, that's, that's all very nice. But in fact, I mean, well, you know, my father typed everything on one of these old black manual royal typewriters, like you see in movies from the 50s. I wish I had the thing today. It's worth money. I use a computer. You know, I mean, I, I you know, I do my research online or I get a, a pile of memoirs and books and I'm just sitting here in my office and there's nothing very typically romantic about that. In what I do now, I, here's maybe what's different between me and a lot of novelists. Novelists can sit down and pretty much do anything they want. I mean, they're writing fiction. They can make it up and nobody's going to complain about that. In my case, I'm actually writing accurate history with real people. You know, whether it's, you know, George Washington, I talk about Benjamin Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, the Red Baron, you know, Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, these are real people and people care about how they're portrayed. And if I don't get it right, uh, my book falls apart and, and deserves to and loses all credibility. So the amount of research, it's work. And I think the notion that, you know, you sit and you stare out the window and you get this beam of idea comes into your head and you sit down and out comes to kill a mockingbird, you know, something, you know, the old man in the sea. Well, maybe, you know, that happens to some people. That's not how it happens to me. There's an awful lot of labor involved first. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think the romance of it is, is and, and for many people, maybe it is romantic, but I would tell, I tell an awful lot of people, don't quit your day. <laughs> Love that. And maybe that will be when I ask you uh, your advice for aspiring writers, maybe that'll be your answer. But we'll hold off on that for now. Hey, everyone. We just wanted to take a quick second to thank you, our listeners, for your continued support. The Writer Experience Podcast has been self-funded from the beginning. So whether you're an aspiring writer who has taken inspiration from the podcast or just enjoy hearing from professional writers, please donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash writer experience. You can also go to our website, writerexperience.com, and click the Patreon button. Thank you again. We really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. So this is the part of the show where I like to transition into the process side of things. We usually frame our episodes around specific themes. We'd love for you to school us on the process of writing a novel from your perspective. Are you down? Sure, absolutely. All right. So normally we start at the inception of an idea or where, you know, you get a story from. In your case, you were brought on to write Gods and Generals. I think, you know, in that case, that was the, the story for that. For your other novels, where do you come up with the ideas for your stories? Since I'm writing historical fiction that's based on real events, the question is, is finding the event, first of all. Right. Um, for example, I mean, I hear the perfect example, the, the American Revolution. I mean, I'll just pick one. Okay, so as a concept, doing the American Revolution, you know, okay, that, that's got to be an interesting idea. Now, based on what I do, which is not what historians do, I'm not going to go back and, and write you a history book about the American Revolution. What I'm going to do is I'm going to find characters, the voices, who are going to be the voices in the story. Typically, maybe four major voices, not, you know, with an occasional minor voice popping up here and there. Now, this format, I didn't invent this. My father invented it. If you read The Killer Angels, that's exactly the way The Killer Angels is written, from different points of view back and forth. 
what I learned in doing that when I started doing this is that's a really good way to move through the timeline. Because if I'm writing about the American Revolution, first of all, where do I start? That's sometimes the biggest challenge. Where do you begin the book? I mean, you don't start with, you know, July 4th, 1776. <laughs> There's an awful lot of stuff that happens before that, including you know, Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill and the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre. There's a lot of stuff that happens. Okay, where do I begin? Well, so that's a huge challenge. When that happens, you know, once I establish you know, where I'm going to start, then, of course, the question is, where do you end? Well, often history makes that decision for me. I mean, when I'm writing, for as well, again, to go back to the American Revolution, I did a two-book set. I broke the series in half. The book ends, the first book ends with the signing of the Declaration, because that's really where the military stuff kicks in, where George Washington kicks in, where you've got Cornwallis, the other side, where he comes into play. So... The series then breaks in half, so the beginning of the second book is pretty easy. You pick up right where the first book ended, but then where do you end? Now, how far do you go? So that's the, that's the challenge part of it. But once I've sort of figured out the timeline, then again, it goes back to those voices. And you know, I like, I'll have preconceived notions of who the voices ought to be, and then I have to find them. Or as my father used to say, they have to find me. I have to hear their words. And that's a very tricky thing. And it involves the research, getting into the minds of the characters. Reading a modern biography does me no good at all, because that's the biographer's take on the character. I need to go back wherever possible, diaries, memoirs, collections of letters, hear those voices where I feel comfortable putting words in the mouths of, you know, if you're putting words in the mouths of George Washington, or Ben Franklin, or John Adams, you better believe they're the right words. Because there are people, as I said before, there are people out there who care. And if you get it wrong, you'll get blasted for it. So, um, you know, I have to get comfortable feeling as though I know the character before I put a single word on the paper. That's the other thing, uh, maybe what I do that's different from a lot of people. I do all my research first. You know, I mean, everything. I write, make all my notes I don't sit down and write a single word until I'm very comfortable that I've got the story. These people who do research and write and research and write, that would drive me insane. <laughs> I, I, just, I just can't do it that way. And the other part of the research, and this is something I do as well, go to the ground. Walk in the footsteps. I don't mean it's mystical. I'm not looking for ghosts, but people do, you know, in the, in, at Gettysburg. But that was what my father did. I mean, what walking the ground, Gettysburg gave him the story. Oh, he wow. knew a good story when he saw one. Well, that's a lesson I've taken to heart. There's only a couple places in a couple of my books where I couldn't go because you just can't go to North Korea, for example, right. and the Libyan desert. I mean, those are two places I couldn't go. But, you know, the most part, yeah, I, you know, walk the ground, see it the way they saw it. You know, only then can I sit down and, and begin to, to write the story. I never use an outline. This surprises other writers I talk to because the history is my outline. It is what it is. I mean, I'm not changing events. I'm not changing dates. And I'm following what happened. Well, there's my outline. So, I, you know, I'm, and my job is to take that and then, and this is the single most important thing, make it a good story. It has to be a good story. You know, you can't count on the history being interesting all by itself. It is sometimes, 
But it's my job, and again, not by fudging or embellishing or exaggerating, but just find the right people so that I can give you this story in a way that you'll find entertaining. That's the challenge. And you said you don't use an outline. You use history as an outline. But you must, you know, since you are writing this for a certain number of pages, per se, or you want this to be a novel, and you want that story to be evenly distributed, so to speak, across the story. And I'm assuming you are working with story arcs, even though it is based on real history. How do you plot those things out in your mind, even if you don't have an outline? It's funny. I mean, I've I've been asked that before, and and I've had to really think about that because (laughs) in my head, when I'm working, none of that, none of it seems to work like that in my head. When I sit down and write, and, and I know this sounds weird, but when I sit down and write, I feel like I'm not writing it. I mean, it, it's coming through me. And again, I'm not a mystic. I'm not somebody out there looking for ghosts. But very often, I feel like, you know, the story's being told behind me, and it's just coming through my hands. And when that happens, I mean, it, it, I, boy, I hate to use the word, but that's the magic of writing. And I, I've talked to a lot of people who write who had the same experience, and they, they sort of nod, you know, knowingly. You know, I'll be writing and all of a sudden, you know, eight pages are done. And, and I'm, I don't even, I'm not even aware time has passed. <laughs> when that happens, it's miraculous. And, and of course, it's also enormous fun when that happens. But, you know, and, I, and I'll make mistakes. I mean, you know, like if, if you want to consider an arc, the idea that I'm going to use this one character and I start following this character and I can't find him or I don't like him. And that's another thing that happened. I have a couple of experiences with that where I just don't like this guy. And gee, you know, I was going to use him to tell us a big, you know, piece of the story and I can't do it. And I just go back, okay, let's get rid of him and let's, you know, find somebody else. So, I mean, I'll go in with preconceived notions of who the characters are going to be, but the story itself will tell me who they ought to be. And, you know, and that's, I like that because it's, it's like a fluid relationship between me and the story. I'm not just making it all up and the story's going to obey the way I want it to go, sometimes it takes me in a direction I didn't expect. How do you know when to start a chapter, end a chapter, compartmentalize those pieces? (laughs) Well, I mean, starting the chapter, I mean, as I said, starting the book, the hardest single thing is page one, you know, at first sentence. And, you know, once that happened, and what typically will happen, and I'm so thankful for this, if you can get that page written, get that page one written, page two is a whole lot easier. And then page three, and all of a sudden it's page 12. You know, it's getting over that first hump. You know, start, sometimes I'll, I'll be wrong. I'll start where I think it ought to start, and, and then I realize, nope, that doesn't work. Go back and I throw five pages away and I start over again because I just don't like, I don't like it beginning there. It needs to begin here. And, you know, it'll take a couple of times. But again, once the flow starts, then it's fun. Ending can be a different kind of challenge. Again, because I'm working with history, you know, that, that makes it a lot easier. I mean, I, when the event ends, it's sort of, you know, when, when World War II ends, there's my book on the Pacific ends. But how to end it? Because I want this story to end in a way that affects you. That, you know, and because it, it needs to affect me first. So I get emotional. I mean, sometimes one of the other things that makes me emotional, and this is maybe one of your story arc things, the death of a character. I mean, again, these are real people. They die. Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox in World War, my, my second book on World War II in Europe about Normandy, 
when he dies toward the end of that book, I was emotional. And then I've had people write me and say, gee, I didn't want to like Rommel, but I cried when he died. Wow. I mean, that's fabulous when that happens. So it's all, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense at all. (laughs) It's all very complicated, but, you know, I thoroughly enjoy it when it works. And I've been very fortunate in my career that most of the time for me, it has worked. You mentioned mistakes and revisions. How many passes do you go through before you get to that kind of finished novel? Do you do kind of a rough and go back and kind of clean it up? Or are you more like, it's pretty close the first time around? My editor credits me with inventing this particular (laughs) technique. When I turn my, one thing I do not do is send them chapters along as I write them. What's the best case scenario? They, you know, my editor calls, gee, that's great. You know, chapter five is great. I can't wait to see chapter six. Well, okay, you know, that's fine, but that really doesn't help. If he writes back and says, gee, chapter five is awful, then that just crushes my confidence. Right. So I've, I've told, I've set up, I've established this from the very beginning. I will send you the manuscript when I'm finished, and it'll and it'll, and it'll be clean. And I'll, you know, because that's the advantage of having a computer. I have a copy, the original copy of my father's of the Killer Angels, the original manuscript. It's a disaster. I mean, because he was scratching out paragraphs and writing things in the margins. He didn't have a computer back then. <laughs> there was no cut and paste. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny to see that. But I turn in a clean manuscript. Then my editor takes a week. I take a week. We both each read it. We make notes. Then I go to New York. We sit down face to face and go a page at a time. Actually, I have a new new editor. You know, she will turn the page. I'll turn the page. You know, page two, page three, and we'll make the changes. And at the end of that process, which is grueling, it takes about two to three days. Then I go to the hotel in New York and sit there with a flash drive and do the rewrites. And in a week, we're finished. And that is, you know, compared to my father's experiences where you send the manuscript to New York, you wait three months to get it back. You do the rewrites, you send it back three more months go by. I'm on a timetable where I'm producing a book every two years. You know, and it's taking me a year to write the book. We don't have the luxury of taking six months to edit. So, I mean, I've sort of established this as a process and it works. And because I get along famously with my editors, I mean, which is something else my father didn't do. He was always fighting with his editor. No, I get along wonderfully. So we work together on this. It's a joint project and it works and it it seems to work pretty well. You mentioned your editor. I was hoping to ask you about, you know, your relationship with your editor. At what point publishers get involved? Are they kind of commissioning a work, so to speak? in the early phases, and then you're kind of sending it back to them. Do you have an agent that's involved? Obviously, for aspiring writers, there's the whole process of having to find an agent, I imagine. Was that fairly easy for you, given what happened with Gods and Generals? I am uh, a very, very tiny minority. I have never used a literary agent. Oh, wow. Going back to you know, the story I told about how I was you know, handling my father's estate, and they, you know, Killer Angels was a number one bestseller, and so that's how I had my foot in the door at Random House. Well, when I sat down to start talking with them, why did I need an agent? I've been the businessman my whole life, and I mean, I used to own my own business. So, you know, publishing contracts are pretty straightforward. You know, like nine pages, and they're not. There's nothing in there that's 
that's going to grab you if you're not careful. I mean, it is pretty, pretty straightforward. So I have, I've negotiated all my contracts through my whole career. I've never used an agent. I've had agents call my editor and say, hey, I want to be his agent. My editor laughs at him. He says, you know, thanks, but I think he's doing okay. <laughs> well, I realize that makes me virtually unique. And, I, and the first piece of advice I give any prospective writer is get an agent. Find an agent because that's essential these days. I know of no publisher in New York who accepts manuscripts that don't first come through the hands of a, of a publishing agent. There may be some, but I don't know of any. Now, that being said, in Hollywood, it's a whole different animal. My contract, I just you know, publishing contracts about nine pages. My contract with Turner for Gods and Generals was about the size of the New York telephone book. That's oh, wow. not an exaggeration. If you don't have an agent, you're going to, you're going to have a problem. And I did. I was woefully underrepresented, uh, you know, live and learn. I know that now. I was cocky enough to think, oh, I can figure this out. No, I really couldn't. And um, so, I mean, that, that's a whole different world out there. You need an agent. You need a lawyer, all that stuff. But in publishing, I mean, yeah, a, a literary agent's essential. Making a deal is not that complicated, and the agent knows how to do that. So, you know, that's, that's really the best answer I can give you to that. What's your relationship with the editor? Are you always no, working with the same publishing company? Or? Interestingly, yeah. in the publishing world, I've had five editors. Okay. Now, that's not because either A, they're misfits, or B, they hate working with me. <laughs> I mean, they've, they've left Random House for other pursuits, either gone on to be writers themselves, they've gone on to be, a couple of them have gone on to be publishers. One's an agent, actually, a friend of mine still in Brooklyn, he's, he's an agent now. So, it, it, you know, publishing is like that in general. Publicists, I've had, I don't know, half a dozen publicists at Random House because they move on to, to different things. It's just the nature of the beast. My relationship with the publisher at Random House is mostly when it comes to contracts. You know, we negotiate a two-book deal, a three-book deal, whatever the next deal is going to be. And it, it's I'm very fortunate that I don't have to turn in like this huge, synopsis of what the book's going to be, we can literally just talk about it. And again, because I'm dealing with real historical events, you know, World War II, and I, you know, like we just dealt with World War II in the Pacific, I'm going to start with Pearl Harbor. We'll see what the next book will be. It might be Guadalcanal. We're not sure yet. That's the conversation right there. And so, you know, we, we, I've already established what my advances are. So that's easy. And then they send the contract and I sign it. And, uh, you know, it's funny, they also will put, one of the things about a contract, they put a deadline in there for when you're supposed to turn the book in, logically enough. I was two weeks late one time, the only time I'd ever been late, and this was about two books ago. I was all upset. I was all full of apologies. I went to my editors. I'm so sorry I'm late with this. And he's laughing at me. And he says, in this business, when a writer misses a deadline, it's by two years. <laughs> so he said, you know, <laughs> don't worry about your two week being late. I mean, that relationship, I'm very fortunate to have that kind of relationship with, I mean, and again, part of it's Random House. You know, I don't know what it's like to be, a, a, you know, to work with HarperCollins or Simon & Schuster or Holt or, you know, I, I don't know. I've been with, at Random House from the beginning. I've been very fortunate. I think that's one of the, the reasons I get along with them, too. I've been doing it with them for a long time. They know me. They know what they're going to get. They know what to expect. And it, it just worked well for all of us. Looking back um, from this point, when you first started out, 
as we were talking about in the beginning, you mentioned you're not a uh, classically trained, so to speak, writer. How did you dive in and learn all these things you've been telling us about today? Did you just try it and learn and fail and keep adapting? Or, or what was going through your head at that time? When I started working on Gods and Generals, my first effort at doing this, first thing I did is I went back and read The Killer Angels. I mean, my job with doing Gods and Generals to, was to write the prequel. Well, the easy part of that is I know exactly where Gods and Generals is going to end. It's going to end exactly where the Killer Angels begins. Well, that makes it pretty simple to end the book. But then the next question, and we've already talked about this, where do you start? You know, I go back to 1858, I mean, you know, prior to the Civil War. I mean, who are the characters going to be? Well, I had my father's blueprint for, for the format, you know, going back and forth from the different points of view, moving through the timeline. That way. So, okay, so I had that as a format. But the characters, one of the major problems right off the bat, one of my father's key characters is James Longstreet. He's played by Tom Berenger in the film Gettysburg. And my father's take on Longstreet was very specific to my father. I'm doing research on Longstreet because I figure, okay, makes sense. I'll include him as his character as well. I didn't find that Longstreet, I didn't find him at all. My father's interpretation was very different than what I ran into, and it scared me to death because, like, well, that's not going to work. You know, what, what do I do now? Well, then I found Stonewall Jackson. Well, Jackson's not in my father's book because he's already dead by then. So I, he became my character, and I, and I was able to develop him. And again, going to the play, going to his home, going to his grave, going to VMI where he taught in Lexington, Virginia, going to the battlefields, all those things. And, uh, relying on my father's experience on what that had done for him. Now, Gods and Generals, first of all, I, it was a 1,200-page manuscript. I didn't know you're not supposed to turn in a 1,200-page manuscript. My <laughs> editor, first day I met him, a guy, Doug Grad, he's, he's an agent now. The first day I met Doug in his office in New York, he said to me, we have to cut 400 pages out of your manuscript. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, well, okay. I mean, I didn't know any different. It's like, I, I, this is how it works. Well, he and I sat down, figured it out, and, you know, and within a couple months, we had the book where it needed to be. So that was a huge learning experience for me. But one thing I have to throw in here, my father taught creative writing at Florida State, where I went to school. One of the first things he would tell his students is, I can't teach you creative writing. If you get an A in this class, it doesn't mean you're going to go out and be a published author. And I, so I think when people ask me, how did you know how to write? I had no idea. And I, I think, and one thing I, and, and all due respect to any bookstore, there's a whole shelf of how-to right. books about how to be a writer. You can find, you know, websites and all. I mean, there's, there's a million of them out there. That's all well and good, and I, I hope those people are making money, but nobody is going to—there's no technique. There's no simple—it's not like a cookbook. You know, one cup of this, one tablespoon doesn't work. It has to come from some other place, you know, inside your head, and I, I don't know exactly what the answer is to that. My next question was— what is one piece of advice you'd give to aspiring writers based on what you just said? Would you say that's, that's what it is, or do you well, have something else? Good point. I mean, I've, I've had this exact conversation with a lot of people. And what I say, first of all, one thing I've already emphasized, if you're going to do 
this. I don't care what you're writing about. I don't care if you're writing about your next door neighbor, your grandfather, your dog. I don't care what it is. You have to care about the story you want to tell. If you're not passionate about telling that story, why would anybody else want to read it? Number one. Number two, what I said before, what my father also taught, if you're going to do this, focus on telling, and again, I'm repeating myself, telling a good story. Don't teach a lesson. Don't do a nudge, nudge, wink, wink about politics. I mean, no, just tell a good story, no matter what it's about. You know, there, there's all kinds of other things. One of the things I tell people writing a novel, uh, and I've had this conversation often, if you're going to tell me a story of some historical thing, if you're going to write historical fiction, take me there. Don't just tell me what happened. Put me there. One of the best reviews of my father's book, of the Killer Angels, I ever saw said, the guy said, for the first time, I felt I knew what it smelled like. Wow. Yeah. Fabulous compliment. Okay. Keep that in mind. What does it smell like? You know, show what does it look like? What does it feel like? Don't just say, well, then, you know, then he went up the hill and then there was a house and he went in the house. No. You know, did he trip and fall? I mean, what did the grass smell like? What, what, what was the sky looking like? One thing I, I don't want to get anybody to do, because I had an editor try to do this to me once, what my father referred to, excuse the expression, verbal diarrhea. You know, don't load up your sentences with every adjective you could think of. Right. That doesn't make it better. <laughs> you know, it just clogs it up. Just put yourself there. You know, when I'm, when I've said this often, when I'm writing an, an historical scene, between, I mean, you know, pick somebody, George Washington and, 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 and John Adams, or between George Patton and Dwight Eisenhower. I'm in the room. Put myself in the room, and then I just tell you what I see and hear. You know, that, you have to get to that point. I guess the, the, the cliche lesson that they teach in, in journalism school is show it, don't tell it. Well, that, that applies very definitely, especially to writing fiction. Show it, don't tell it. And that, you know, that's probably the best advice there is. This is the one question I get that I hate. When people ask me, what is the secret to writing a bestseller? <laughs> First of all, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think there is one. But second of all, if that's your motivation, if you're going into this because you want to be J.K. Rowling or Stephen King, don't waste your time. You know, you, you have to have a passion for something other than making money. You know, it has to be something about the storytelling. Love it. Do you want to plug any project that is on the horizon? Well, I mentioned earlier, I'm, you know, I'm starting to work um, in, uh, going back to World War II. I did a trilogy in Europe, uh, World War II in Europe. Then I did a fourth book on the end of the war in the Pacific, Okinawa and the dropping of the bomb. But, you know, I've heard from an awful lot of old sailors, some of the old veterans and Marines who've said, gee, you know, what, go back to the beginning. And my publisher is very excited about this. They know there's an audience out there for World War II, just like there is for the Civil War. And so I decided to go back and focus on the Pacific. I'm not sure how many books it'll be, if it'll be two or three, but to do, you know, starting at the beginning. And the beginning is Pearl Harbor. And to go from there and, you know, what you've got, I mean, you've got 50 different stories that would be fabulous from, you know, Midway and Guadalcanal right. and Iwo Jima and Saipan and Guam and, you know, on and on and on. 
I don't know what the, you know what will follow, but I'm working on Pearl right now. I'm actually going out to Hawaii in March to meet with the chief historian out there is Dan Martinez, who's a fabulous guy, has already given me a, a reading list. He's already given me homework to do. And I'm going to be sitting down with him, looking at some resources, getting Japanese resources, you know, getting the voices on the other side. I'm very excited about this. Uh, the story's already beginning to take shape in my head a little bit. I'm doing an enormous amount of reading. And I'm, I'm excited. And the book should be out in about probably spring of 2020, you know, next year. So I'm, you know, I'm very excited about it. And um, it's great, great characters. And you've written 15 New York Times bestsellers. Could we see any other movies made? I mean, I feel like all these stories have huge potential in the movie slash TV world. Is that something you want or something that could happen? It certainly could happen. I mean, I've actually sort of been a little bit curious why I haven't gotten more phone calls. And I, and I have gotten phone calls, of course, in, in the past, before you had Nat Geo and Netflix and Hulu and all of that stuff. I would get calls from a network or something, and then I would never hear from them again. Right? That was sort of like the normal thing. But I would think what I, what I keep hearing out of Hollywood or out of television land is that there's a, a thirst for content. Hollywood seems to keep making the same movies over and over again and you know, remaking the same movies over and over again, not to great success in a lot of cases. So I would think, you know, maybe somebody at some point, I realize that a lot of what I'm doing is more military, and maybe that's not politically correct to a lot of people, but they're also really good character stories. And we'll see. I mean, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. I mean, I've said many times, I'm in the writing business. I'm in the publishing business. I like the writing business. It's been very good to me. I'm not in the movie business. If someone else wants to do something with my books, that's great. But right now, I mean, I'm very happy being a writer. Love it. And did you have a handle or do you want to shout out your website? What's the best way somebody should contact you or sure. look, it's check simply out my name? It's just www.jeffshara.com. And it's J-E-F-F-S-H-A-A-R-A.com. I have a link in there where you can write me. I answer every email that comes into my website. It may take me a couple of weeks, but uh, I, I answer everybody. I also, and to put in a plug, I also sell... My books there are autographed. So if you want to buy an autograph book, hardcover, paperback, I have everything there. You can actually do that through the website as well. And I write a personal note that I keep updating about once a month of what's going on and what I'm doing. And, uh, and I'm, I entertain any input. And I, I talk about this, even, even the grouchy ones. If somebody's <laughs> upset about something I did, that's fine. Tell me about it. I'll answer. Amazing. My last question, and it might be the most important question or the most intense question. Did you have fun today? Yes. I hope it shows. I mean, I, I you know, I don't, I don't give one word answers no. to, to interviews. I mean, I enjoy talking about this stuff and, uh, you know, I know how fortunate I am. I hope no one believes that I'm, uh, you know, cocky and arrogant about what I do. I know that I am extremely fortunate to be doing what I'm doing and to have had the success I've had, especially coming from a, you know, from a father who did not. And uh, spent 40 years of his life as a writer and won a Pulitzer Prize and died believing he was a failure. I mean, that's that resonates with me deeply. So, yes, uh, I deeply appreciate that anyone cares about anything I have to say. So I thank you for that. Yeah, we had a lot of fun, learned a lot. Glad you had fun, too. Thank you again. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.